0: Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Psychological thrillers are often steeped in psychological theory. And in today's episode, we take a deep dive into the darkness and research of author J.P. Pomari's breakout debut, Call Me Evie. Featuring the story of a young girl seemingly held against her will in a small town in New Zealand, Call Me Evie questions the very nature of memory and self. Hello, JP. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Now, JP, you begin Call Me Evie with a quote from Daniel Kahneman, who's a well-recognised psychologist, basically the the creator of behavioural economics. Mm. Why did you do
1: it? Well, I had... One, I'd read lots of his work, particularly Thinking Fast and Slow, um, I don't know, I want to say like five times and it's a thick, dense, um, it reads like a university textbook, like it's not an easy read. Um, But the reason being is I was just so fascinated by why we make decisions in certain ways, but also the counterintuitive nature of um, one, how we deal with money, but two, memories how memories form um and so the reason i started with that particular quote is because one it's daniel kahneman speaking quite candidly like um and is in the book he's very quite serious but this was on an npr i think it was a podcast or a radio show and he's just sort of himself um i found that quite refreshing but two it was also it's about memory it's about how memory changes and um it's about how we believe in our memories even though we may be aware or even though we um, collectively we know memories change but still how we put so much faith in the idea of truth and memory which is just not you know it's just so fallible and so flexible and so easily manipulated um so I, I wanted to I wanted to sort of point to that and I wanted to make it clear to the reader before they'd started the book that this deals with memory and that there may be an element of memory manipulation.
0: One of the big things of Daniel Kahneman's work seems to be this idea that there's two selves that we have, one which is the um, experiencing self and the other which is the remembering self. Yeah. And the remembering self is the one that builds stories for us and that's also the one that seems to drive our decisions, which decision-making seems to be one of the biggest issues of Call Me Evie.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's... that's um, yeah. It's, it's a good point, and that's obviously, um, you know, it sounds like you've done a reasonably close reading of the text because with, so with Daniel Kahneman's work, and The Two Selves, The Experiencing and The Remembering Self, um, things like when we, so when you experience something, um, regardless of how happy you feel when it's happening, you're perception of that will be is purely dictated by your memory and your memory is dictated by what's called the peak end rule so even this is a really funny quirk of memory so the peak end rule is you whether so you will rate an experience based on the emotions you felt at the peak and the emotions you felt at the end regardless of how long the experience was and, and a whole host of other factors um so you could have a horrible time um for ten hours, but at its peak, was really happy, and at the end, you're really comfortable, and that you remember that as as better as a bit of experience than if you had ten seconds, and but all ten seconds were horrible, and there wasn't any sort of happiness or any positive emotional experience at all throughout that process in those ten seconds. So the, things like that, these biases in the brain, um, I think I will always write about them, and they'll always find a way into my work. And you're right, this idea that of how we build narrative. So that's one point. Um, it's just the PKN rule, but there's all sorts of biases that sort of are rules for how we define our experience. Um, and so the experiencing self, so if you've got dementia, for instance, what is happiness? There's all sorts of moral questions you can ask if happiness is determined by how we remember this experience. So, um, in the same way you take photos when you're on holiday and then you reflect on upon the photos and although at the time you might not be that happy because all you're doing is taking photos, you remember the, this holiday is so fun because you can look at these photos So and, and in that way you can reminisce about those experiences. So there's just, you know, there's all sorts, it's just such fertile ground for a psychological thriller um, and as you said, that narrative in the story, I wanted to tap into that, what is real? What's Kate experiencing? Um, you know how's her perception of the world shaped by her memories, which are shaped by her experiences and all sorts, all the sort of biases and all the luggage that comes with when you do reflect upon experiences, particularly when you are very emotional or very drunk. Two things that can really colour your your perception of that experience as well. Um, So there's a whole bunch of stuff in there, but if I were to sort of um, tease out these theories and things. A great deal more in the book it becomes the prose would just become so damp and heavy with all these um, scientific concepts that have no bearing on whether or not it's a good story so i just the stuff with daniel kahneman and and um particularly thinking fast and slow and lots of his research the main things i wanted to make sure was that lots of this is conceivable from a scientific perspective as well as um the the social and emotional and all these sort of interactions between the characters. I wanted to make sure that the biases in the brains and how Kate thinks and how some of the other characters think um, are reflective of what could potentially happen in the real world. Well, it seems to be certainly in, in
0: accordance with psychological theory, Kate herself has um, a very bad memory in the truest sense of she has a lack of memory. And under psychological studies, they've proven that a lack of memory is limits people's ability to make choices. Mm. And, and that becomes very clear as the book goes on, that she can't seem to break away from this environment that she's in because she doesn't know what's real.
1: Yeah, it's really easy as a reader to... Um, to sort of view this as a lack of agency for the character because she's she like it can be paralyzing you know if you can't remember something it can really be paralyzing and if you you know if you are um called upon to make decisions you know if your current situation requires that you make decisions but you can't rely on your memory um, it presents, you know, a whole host of challenges, and as I said, it can be paralyzing. So, lots of Kate's lack of agency, um, which again it would be an easy criticism to level because you know she has opportunities to do things where she doesn't, and then other times she does really erratic things quite suddenly, and that's all tethered to the idea of um, memory and also the sort of lack of self-control um, and, and all, all the things that come with that. So yeah, it's. A, it's a, I'm glad you sort of. Um, Pointed that out because it is it's as much as it's deliberate it's also you know it made the story more tense as well so it was i'm glad that it um sort of conforms to some of these some of these sort of um, principles of psychology.
0: Well, I think one of the interesting things is it's very easy to say that we have a an unreliable narrator and that's obviously been deliberately set up, but it's as you read along you get this sense of are there false memories here and that becomes a big issue in the book and that again ties back to this psychological idea of anchoring, which is the cognitive bias around being given an idea or a memory and then all your decisions are built around that
1: yeah yeah anchoring you know what I hadn't that's a, a another concept I'm pretty familiar with and I hadn't thought a great deal about how anchoring ties into this book but so much of the writing experience for me is informed by things that I've read and you just don't know how subconsciously it gets into the text but that's something that I have um I've read a lot about and when you you know my background sort of in the more marketing side of things, so you, that's a concept that you talk about in, in marketing, like this sort of price anchoring and things like that. And I'm so familiar and aware of the effects of, of this, um, but I hadn't thought about it. But yeah, it's you're right that she, Kate is, um, like you said, there's this sort of she's tethered to certain concepts and ideas, and they, they are from memories or false memories. But you're right, there's that she's sort of all of her decisions are kind of informed by her perceptions of other characters and things that are happen particularly with her friend Willow, that sort of anchor anchor. yeah, that's that's another really interesting concept that. I myself hadn't thought much about but it's definitely present in the text
0: you started writing this around 2014 2015 i think is that correct yeah 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 okay it's how much were these ideas playing with your head because it seems to have informed a lot of your short story work in the last couple of years as well when we look at things like the grief code or Mm. real ticker or trees don't grow
1: Mm. i mean the first thing i say is they are in short literary fiction you um, you can get away with more in some regards, but you have so much less room to dwell upon things. So you're called upon to at once be more subtle, but also freight your language in a way where you can convey more emotion, more, more meaning. Um, so I find short stories, um, one, that is such a good way to cut your teeth as a, as a writer, but two, I also find them... Um, probably more challenging to write on a sort of sentence level. Um, so these ideas are really present in my short fiction because, I mean, most of those stories were written probably before or around the same time as Evie, but um, I was sort of purging ideas in a way in these stories. I was, I, was, I, was, I am endlessly fascinated by the human brain. And that's, that's one of the main sort of I guess that's central to all my work so far Is the human brain and how it shapes um, experience And um, the physical Even the physical side of the brain In one story I, um, One of the characters is This might be a real ticker um, They're talking about when you You can hold a heart and a brain in one hand each at medical school And they're roughly, you know, the brain's much smaller than you would imagine it And the heart's much bigger um, Which is like just such a like ham-fisted metaphor But also, that's the things like that I find really interesting Because our perception even of the human brain Is, is informed by, um, you know, these sort of age-old images Of having a big or a small brain And how that reflects your intelligence and stuff And so... And a bit and like the heart seems like small and frail compared to this big brain, but side by side, essentially you know they're not it's not an enormous difference in size, not nearly as big as you probably would think so um, I like that it is I like that these things are popular and well known, but we still don't we think we know, but we don't um, and so going back to what you're saying about psychology and and in these I mean, I'm exploring probably in those three stories you mentioned, I'm exploring three reasonably different ideas. But if we look at, say, the grief code, um, that's, again, we're talking about, well, we're dealing with ideas of um, artificial intelligence and um, immortality and a whole bunch of other stuff, but we are at its core dealing with memory and, and how people remember you know how how our memories are shaped by this physical thing, as much as by this personality within this body. You know how how if you do put someone make create the exact same experience of dealing with this person in terms of the words they say and their insights and their sense of humor, and you digitize these people and you and you make this sort of AI version of them, um, are they still the same people, or is it better to simply possess these memories, let let them sort of pass away, go through the grieving process and sort of move on without this new thing that is essentially a digital version of something that's gone Um, and how powerful memories are when it comes to grief and grieving and stuff like that. So um, these are all, yeah, so much of this is informed by, um, well, my own sort of experience with grief, but also just the psychological principles behind these things. And I think if you are writing in psychological suspense, which is, happens to be the way I'm writing at the moment, you owe it to your readers to have some acquaintance with many of these concepts. Um, they shouldn't be plot twists. They shouldn't be They shouldn't be clever um, deus ex machinas. They shouldn't be these things you use to sort of yeah make characters crazy enough that things happen like if you're interested in this stuff and if you're writing in this space you should be quite serious about learning enough about it so you can write it authentically but also um for someone like me i find it just inspiring the power of the human brain and, and memory and and things like that so
0: i found an interesting line that you'd used um a while back in a non-fiction piece You'd written about the fact that in The Lifted Brow, which was a review of A.S. Patrick's work... Yeah, I mean, you've read yeah,
1: pretty deeply. I'm enjoying this. <laughs> like, what did I say? In <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it's one of these moments where you've written the biases in our brain that undermine our reason when we give weight to tragedy... Yeah. And that seems to...
1: That seems Quite heavy, to, right? Yeah. i like, did I write that? Oh, it's dark. Yeah, no, but, um,
0: but, but I mean, it does connect again to this issue that, you know, the biases of our brain when we look at Kate as a character, we look at the other characters in these stories of grief and loss. The biases in our brain undermine our reason when we give weight to tragedy and it really is a story of how much weight we give to a tragic event, yeah. how much we remember and what it does to us.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, um, it's crazy that I wrote that and uh, because that seems like it's good writing and I feel like I'm not capable of that. No, it's, you know, it's like, I'm like, wow, who wrote that? I wrote that. It's quite interesting because that um, memory again, right? <laughs> um, the, the, that quote, I mean, I like that. Um, when I wrote it at the time, I probably hated it, but that's part of being a writer. And I had forgotten, not about that review, but particularly about writing about uh, memory and, and tragedy. I think with Kate, you know, the, so so things like, what happens in um, Atlantic Black, for instance, but you know when we do give weight to tragedy, we you know grief's been studied so many times in so many different ways, and there's there's the sort of you can look at it purely scientifically, or you can have more of a sort of holistic or a more of a sort of psychological kind of approach um, that's perhaps less of the scientific method and more. Um, intuitive you can view how people respond to tragedy and you can make draw all sorts of conclusions and assumptions based on that um, so I think like the seven steps of grieving or whatever you know like there's all these sorts of ways of, um, of discussing and intellectualizing this totally natural process of feeling really shitty when something horrible happens um, but I say that but I still subscribe to some of the core sort of ideas and principles surrounding grief and memory and how. So, for instance, like you're always going to view people who have died as the sort of martyr, you know, or or as, you know, depending on how they died or whatever. But you're always going to sort of 99% of the time, Hitler's probably not going to ever be looked at favourably. But many people, after they pass away, will overlook some of the shitty things they might have done or said or who they were. Um... And particularly, you know, since celebrities all of a sudden there's this outpouring of grief from actors or musicians you haven't listened to or heard about in such a long time but because you're emotionally tethered to like who you were when you listened to them and, and it sort of signals the passing of time because you're no longer that person. There's all sorts of reasons why we feel or experience grief when famous people die. So I know I'm rambling now but my point is we can, um, when you do look at grief and when you do think about um, particularly people who have died you have to appreciate there's all sorts of biases and there's all sorts of protective measures you you your brain and your psyche are really good at insulating you from um, these sorts of deep or or emotional breakdowns and so in call me if we can relate that particular quote back to call me you know um, something happens and it's it's hard not to talk about it without talking about spoilers but something happens that's quite sort of shocking or terrible um, and that can affect memory absolutely Um, particularly if you uh, were in some way involved or present when it happened Um, so people who have experienced great trauma um, will often for instance they will they'll disassociate when that when they're called upon to recall this sort of trauma that's not completely removed from Kate's experience. So the brain can do all sorts of things to protect you from from memories and from trauma and from tragedy. Um, and so lots of what's happening in this book with Kate is is this sort of natural psychological. Um, You know, insulation or protection from some of these really scary, dark, horrible things that you don't want to think about.
0: Well, that also comes back to Daniel Kahneman's work again, which is the the difference between the experiencing self and the remembering self is how they both determine time. Mm. And that plays out very strongly within the book because you do play with a sense of memory, but also a sense of time because the book is constantly breaking between before and after.
1: Yeah, yeah i mean there's so there's cause and effect and i like the idea of mingling them so so effect and cause are are being sort of exhibited concurrently or or sort of in these parallel narratives um so that was more of a decision you know the before and after i think that's great for thrillers i think i like that sort of two-strand structure um but there's also yeah you're right there is So often, when I'm showing the reader the past, I'm calling upon Evie to recall or Kate to recall um, recall these events. So yeah, that's another good point because it's it's not something I had actively sought to do. The decision was a structural decision based on. that idea of cause and effect, but there is also that, yeah, the the memory aspect of it as well.
0: There's a line you've used in a couple of different stories over the last couple of years as a descriptor for the loss of memory, which is um, the way someone might watch a river in which his best friend was once swept away. Yeah,
1: (laughs) you have read a lot. (laughs) Um, The reason I like that, I mean... I think it's not uncommon to recycle some of your favorite, favorite lines. And the reason I really like that line is because of what the... So it's easy to imagine, um, but it's also what the river sort of represents. So in one story, if I remember correctly, it's about dementia um, and the loss of memory. Um, and and I believe the dad is looking at um, his wife and she is... dementia's is the river. And he's lost his wife to dementia, um, and that's to me like like a surging river represents you know the passing of time as well, um, and you can't swim against you can't sort of battle against it. Um, and I think memory and time, yeah, like you said, that's that's so central, and it's it's also you know everyone um, your memory changes your whole life. You, you know you you don't necessarily not all of us will lose our memory, but lots of us will lose certain memories um, and we'll remember things in different ways. And we will certainly short-term memory, um, we're likely to have short-term memory issues by the time you die, you probably will. Um, Certainly to the extent that you're not as good at remembering when you're old as when you're young. That's gonna probably happen to everyone. but the interesting thing for me, and that's that's tethered to time. So memory and time, are, are sort of, you know, they they are the answer, the same answer, you know, two different answers to the same question for me. Um, and so, with when I use that line in um, Call Me Evie from memory, Jim is looking at Kate, and there's a suggestion that. Um, Something has changed You know, like it's hard to talk about without yeah. Talking about spoilers yeah. But he sees something in her That reminds him of something he's lost Yeah, it's literally washing away Yeah, that sort of washing And, and, and it's, you know I imagine when I wrote that line originally And, and when I think about that um, I imagine standing on a bridge And seeing someone you know swept away which actually happened. Um, I I wasn't there, but some of my good friends um, were drinking, and someone fell in a river uh, in the Waikato River, um, and was his body was found days later. So, um, and he was sort of swept away. And I and I, although I wasn't there, it's such a powerful image, and I just and I was you know it's such a horrible thing thinking about it. Um, just the idea of you know you know it's such a clear image for me, and it's it's. Um, still quite emotionally raw it's something I don't like to think about so when I wrote that line the first time that's I think that's probably where my head was at is this is the way we lose people as well Um, we can lose them they can die instantly or they can drown or they can um, or they can slowly be taken by dementia um, or they or you can see someone you've lost and someone else you know and you can see them sort of following that same path which is incidentally what's sort of happening in call me evie so yeah it's i I don't like to think that that line has been um that'll come up again in my in my work but it is something that i i thought was a really powerful image and it is something that i think really conveys what i want in a metaphorical way quite clearly
0: it's interesting hearing the, the, the real story behind where that's come from because, in researching you, you have to make logical jumps when preparing for an author conversation. You, you interview authors with your fantastic yeah, yeah. podcast, I feel On like Writing. I don't read,
1: and I'm, I'm like, this is so deep. <laughs> <laughs> we're, like, talking about, like, making jokes and stuff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but but in the research, one of the leaps I was making with that line, I was wondering if any of it had related to something a little lighter, which was you spent time as a teenager on a tall ship and you were taught yeah. a valuable lesson with a cabbage.
1: Yeah, I yeah. I thought it might
0: have related to that. Could you tell that story?
1: Yeah, that's quite a funny story. I mean, I went on this boat. Um, it's called the Spirit of New Zealand and it's something you do. They send gifted or troubled or otherwise kids on this boat together but t- they tend to be people who are sort of have an interest in outdoors and want to be a prefect and want to put it on their resume I don't know why people do it but it was fun and it changed me it really did um we I went on this boat and you go out for 10 days and everyone vomits because no one's been at sea before and um and you get to know each other and there's a daylight rule like no one can touch each other because they don't want these 14 15 16 year olds like having sex or whatever, I don't know. Um, I But, you know, they, they, they were sort of like a different crowd to who I was normally hanging out with at school and stuff. They were all sort of pretty straight edge, lots of more Aucklanders. Um, so I was a, I was from a sort of country town. And um, we went on this boat and I immediately identified with a couple of the bad kids. And, they, and I was sort of like this kind of weird bad kid on the boat or whatever. But there was a moment where this captain to demonstrate how quickly you can be lost at sea. He caught us all out on the, well, I guess it's like the aft cabin roof part. I don't know. Was it? was it like the bow, stern, bow? I haven't done oh, that much research. The back yeah. of the boat. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. You weren't present, I suppose. Uh, so we're at the back of the boat and they got it like full sail and we're just like flying along. And um, there's no phone reception, by the way. So even if you sneak your phone on, you can't do anything. And he, um, he just gets this cabbage and just throws it into the waves and there's about four seconds where you can see it and then all of a sudden it's lost in the gray sort of rising and falling. It was pretty rough, but you just, you're. I'm like, oh, whatever, if we someone fell off, I'd see them for miles away, but you, you've you got about four or five seconds and then all of a sudden you've got no idea where it is because that's how fast you're traveling and that's how rough the sea is. Um, and you can drown pretty, pretty quickly, obviously, if you haven't got a life jacket on, if you're not a great swimmer. Um, and you're out at sea. And, so that, and that's essentially, that cabbage is your head. That cabbage is, yeah, symbolic of your head. I mean, you can sort of flail your arms and stuff, but essentially, you know, your head is basically disappeared after like four or five seconds. Um, and it's bobbing between the giant swell as well. So you just, you've got no chance of being necessarily being seen. You'd have to double, by the time the boats turn around and stuff, or the ship. Um, as it were, has turned around you. Yeah, you're not gonna you know behind. But it's funny that you've um, that you've brought that up because it was that's one of those moments in my life that was like I think I did change doing that, having that experience. And I you know I was so cynical and skeptical as a teenager. and I thought this is just pointless. Um, but I got back and I feel like I was actually um, just altered. You know, it's just this perception of the world was just slightly different. Having this isolation with these people I don't know in the middle of the sea. Everyone getting home, sick, everyone throwing up, but everyone largely having a positive experience. It was quite, yeah, it was quite eye-opening.
0: And do you think that sort of started this wandering spirit that you had for the next couple of years? Because, I mean, you're you're very well-traveled.
1: Yeah, no, I've been, yeah, I mean, I've been around. I have travelled a lot, but um, I'm the youngest kid, so in our family... um, you
0: come from quite a, a large extended yeah, family.
1: A very big extended family, but my four brothers and sisters, there's four of us. I'm the youngest of us four, but I'm the youngest of like 11 of dad's kids or whatever. Um, but, you know, we, so you've got four people. One brother's the first to get kicked out of home. He's done that. I don't need to do that. One brother was the first to go to uni. Um, sister was like the kind of show off, like, you know, not like actor sort of, but, you know, like had that sort of bigger personality. And so all the roles are sort of taken And I think, you know, there's so much science About where you sit and how that Influences who you become And I always think that's bullshit But I I actually agree that I wasn't as compelled To be This sort of straight-laced Accountant because that's what my brother studied Um, I got to witness My eldest brother have these sort of Breakdowns and like get kicked out of home And get beaten up and like live on the street you know I, I got to see my artist brother but out of us four anyway my artist full brother I got to see and experience him being a bit of a dick and a bully um you know he's changed now but it was pretty hard growing up with him just adoring the limelight and doing anything for it and that's kind of like I guess I would be like that if I didn't get to witness it and experience um how that felt as a younger sibling and, and copping daily like punches and things like that so Maybe I'd be more of a bully if I hadn't. So there's all sorts of things that influence I, who I became. But because no one had been this um, kind of, you know, like I got into surfing and no one else did. And I got into like, I was hitchhiking around um, New Zealand for years and I was um, camping and swimming out and sleeping on islands and just doing whatever I could that was slightly different that, that I thought was this genuine pursuit of uh, an experience that was completely my own. Um, and I think when you are the youngest, you don't, you, you know, you, some people would want to follow in the older brothers, footsteps, but I think most people want to sort of cut their own path. So that for me, you know, going out and doing all these things and, and, you know, at times being a bit of a dickhead, but going out and just sort of finding myself traveling a lot like I was, I don't think any of my brothers have traveled or any of my siblings have traveled a great deal. I mean... They Have but mainly as adults. So when I was like 18 to 23, I just wanted to see the world and wanted to. I like flew to South America with way too little money, you know, like I just wanted to go there. Um, and and then like I kind of got rid of like my I was like selling stuff to stay there and like try and hitchhike and and like Bolivia, you know, it's just it's just not a good idea. Um, but I was so desperate to sort of just have this own experience. It was my own. Um, and all the while, I'm trying to write and read and trying to learn to write, and I thought I was pretty good, but I, I definitely wasn't. But so much of this definitely informed um, my approach to writing and just doing it to, to kind of satisfy yourself first, doing it to to kind of do something or have an experience that's completely your own. And I think
0: yeah, so it's a genuine sense of ownership and sense of self of who you are.
1: Yeah, and, and the sort of like intrepid kind of, I mean, I'm not an idiot. You know, when I started to write, I was like, this is going to be tough. And there's millions, millions, tens of millions, possibly hundreds of millions of people who want, who, who have this sort of inner ideal of who they are and that person is a famous novelist or is a novelist or is a literary novelist or whatever so all these people sort of harbored this kind of ambition and so i i thought well you know i'm probably not in the top 0.1 of people who actually get to have that sort of dream come true so i was fully aware that the odds were completely stacked against me in the same way when i flew to south america with very little money i knew you know i'm going to come back with my tail between my legs i'm not going to learn the language um, there's going to be some pretty tough nights, whatever. Like I knew that in all likelihood that's how things turned out.
0: But Do you think it helps that there's almost this attitude of, well, there's, I have nothing left to lose at, that, at those points <sighs> because you can't turn around?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's a little bit backing yourself in the corner. I, I mean, I have the privilege of knowing I could always go live with my dad. If, if I was completely stuck, he would get me a ticket home. I, and I believe that now like if I was in if I was ever in big trouble I feel like my dad's a phone call away I feel like um he would have the means to potentially help me out you know to, to a certain extent like if I hit someone with a car, or so, you know, like there's certain, there's certain circumstances he's not going to be able to do anything. But I mean, We wonder why you've chosen a dark novel <laughs> if I hit someone with a car. Well, you know, like if I was going to prison, he's not going to be like, oh yeah, I'll ring the Prime <laughs> Minister. Um, so, you know, but as in, as far as he would, you know, as far as he could, he, I feel like he would. And same with my brothers. And that's a real privilege as a writer to know there is a sense of safety net. you know, um, so as much as I want to say, oh, I'm just this risk-taker that will do anything, I also have the, the privilege that most people don't, and that's that if things really went pear-shaped, I have the security of, of family who would definitely support me. Um, so the, there is that as well, but it's also this, just the idea of doing what you want to do and being and just not necessarily having the balls but having having the... Um, the the sort of energy that if no one else likes what you're doing you're going to like it you know if you don't sell a novel or don't sell a short story you've got this sort of satisfaction of creating something so I think that's probably the parallels between travel and writing for me was just the sense that it was all my own and I was sort of doing something different that I wanted to do and that experience was genuine you said
0: then that you knew how hard it was going to be to try and become a professional writer. One interesting thing I've heard you say elsewhere is that actually through your podcast, talking to other writers, it actually helps you deal with the arrogance of trying to become a writer. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so, you know, so I start writing and I think, cool. Cool when the book is soon and you think that, you know, I think everyone's like has this weird dream. They're going to like write this bestseller and and it's going to just sort of happen. Um, Not everyone. I think if you're just an arrogant little shit, you, you think things are going to happen for you. Um And like it's failure at first that sort of numbs you to this. So you want to fail a lot. If you are that arrogant, if you do believe that things are going to happen, if you think you've already You've, you've already got the materials to do this. You need to fail so much before you fully appreciate how difficult this thing is. So I think I failed a lot and that kind of grounded me. And then meeting other writers, so, but then that's, you kind of that's a different thing because you're not good enough, right? You just you, you begin to realize you need to put in a lot of work. So you do that and you put in a lot of work. And then when I met writers, it was that sense that. I had gone so far the other way that it'll never happen and I had this really defeatist sort of attitude. And um, and I started the podcast because I wanted those insights. Like how did you do it? How did, how did it work for you? And so when I was interviewing people and I was getting these little insights and, and all of a sudden the process became there's these sort of measurable steps you can take. Like there's these milestones and all of a sudden I realised these people are similar to me. It's not this kind of... You know, it's not this thing that's so um, it's so out of reach that I will, I could never do it. All of a sudden, I was like, it's not impossible, and and that's the that's that sort of reemergence of that arrogance of that hubris. Like you, you know, maybe I do have the tools. Maybe I'm not so different to whoever I'm sitting across the table from. This person's describing experience that's really similar to where I am. They were they were going through this. Why not me? So all of a sudden. Um, you become very aware of the realities of the industry and you become very savvy to what it takes to be a writer and you have to be in the top certain percent and everyone wants to do it. You become aware of that and the statistics and everything really beat you down. You know, J.K. Rowling was rejected a million times or whatever and you hear these stories and, you, and it really gets you down. But then in meeting writers, you realise it's attainable. You, you, They tell you about their experience and you say this in many ways parallels my own
0: the second book is done which is set around a cult yeah and is to be released next year 2020 and you're already onto the third at
1: this point yeah so i've had a whole bunch of false starts for the third it's funny like everyone's people are quite surprised that i've written the second and the only reason i have is because of the podcast And everyone's like start the second straight away don't write the second when you're touring because like i said right now i don't have the time to be bored enough to Fully immerse myself in the story. So, um, I wrote the second really quickly, edited it. I'm going through structural edits with with my publisher at the moment. I've written one manuscript of seventy thousand words, which I'm not going to go back to for a while. One of fifty thousand words, which I'm not going to go back for a while because I'm i just not really. I, I don't like the story. I've had a couple more false starts, We've written sort of five to ten thousand words, and just hated the character, or the story, or the setting. I have got a really, really good idea now that I'm like saving and I'm building up and I'm like, I'm going to wait until I'm the perfect place when all the touring stuff's finished and everything where I can just sit down and get the story out because I really like it. So I'm sort of saving that one.
0: Well, JP, Call Me Evie has been highly successful. It's a terrific read. It's dark. It's brooding. And probably the greatest way I could describe it, it has this overwhelming sense of dread throughout the entire novel. And I really look forward to reading what you're doing now. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, JP. And you can find Call Me Evie in all good and evil bookstores and online. You can follow JP on Twitter at JPPomari, and you can follow us at ConversationsWW. Next month, we'll be back with something completely different, so please stay with us. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you, thank you, thank you, seriously, for listening.